clear again this morning that there is nothing and no one that compares to you. Your glory and your majesty are matchless. You are bright shining as the sun. And Father, we have come together this morning to shout about your glory, about your grace, about your matchless love for us. And Father, we recognize this morning that we are not worthy. But by the blood of Jesus Christ, we can stand before your throne this morning. We thank you for Jesus. That through him we have become the very righteousness of God. We stand in awe of that truth this morning, Father. And we worship you. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity that we can have to come before your throne. We remember other believers this morning who are unable to enjoy the community and the fellowship of your body. We bring them before you today. We lift them up. So, Father, as we continue to worship you this morning, to praise you in different ways, to hear again about the path that you have walked for us. We ask that your Holy Spirit would presence itself here amongst us, that you yourself would be speaking and ministering to us this morning because we eagerly desire to have your kingdom come in the hearts and the minds of those who don't know you yet as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name. So, good morning, Goeiemorgen, Molweni. Well done on making it out of bed this morning. <laughs> this morning I had a flashback from uh, two years back where um, we could do church in bed. Do you remember that? <laughs> I thought, wow, that was disgusting. <laughs> and this morning we have the opportunity to be together on a beautiful Sunday morning um, undercover. We praise the Lord for that. Um, so for the next two weeks, um, Kirk and I are actually going to be doing a very short sermon. Kirk is not here. Kirk is still catching his breath after Holiday Club, a much-needed time of break for him. Um, and so what we are actually going to do is we're going we're gonna to kind of circle back um, to the series that Craig had been leading us through. We won't go back to Samuel, but what we will do is we'll continue to look again at passing on what has been left to us. The theme again of, in a sense, leaving a legacy for the generation that follows on from us. Um, and so this morning I'm particularly going to look at the walk that Jesus walked, and next week I think Kirk is going to unpack for us from the Old Testament, possibly looking at Joshua. And so I want us to consider this morning the engagement that Jesus himself had with receiving from those who went before him and then worked to pass on to the next generation. 
who in turn did the same and the following generation did the same all the way down to where we are now. And of course, it is expected of us as well to follow suit with that. And so we'll kind of focus on legacy this morning. We'll touch on, on that aspect. Let me just also say, the children are with us. They do not bother me. Um, unfortunately, we didn't have enough folks sign up for, for Jungle Jam. If that is something that entices you, <laughs> there's still an opportunity for next week where you can help us um, in that space. So this act of passing on something to the next, when I think about that, it sounds to me similar to leaving an inheritance. Leaving something behind when you pass on from this world. Now you can often tell what mattered most to someone by what they leave behind and to whom they leave it to. Um, and there's this story, while I was doing some reading up on this, there's this story about this, this woman from New York, a hotelier and a, and a real estate billionaire, who left $12 million to her dog in her inheritance. True story. The dog's name was Trouble. Um, and so this, this pampered pooch actually received the largest bequest from this woman, a Mrs. Helmsley, while some of her human members of her family, in fact, two of her four grandchildren, were cut out of her will entirely. That was a mind-boggling story. That it, I don't know how a dog would spend $12 million. <laughs> I'd like to be the carer, though. And then there's the story about this Portuguese aristocrat who left um, much of his wealth to strangers from a phone directory. This man, Luis Carlos da Camara, left his wealth to 70 people listed in a Lisbon phone directory. And apparently what he did was he had two witnesses with him, and at random he chose people in the directory and he left millions of, of pounds to people whom he didn't even know. And in fact, he did this 13 years before he passed. And then in 1968, there was the story of a, a British man from Hampshire, and he directed that his estate of 26,000 pounds be placed in a trust for none other than Jesus Christ. And his will stipulated that if Jesus didn't claim it within 80 years, it needed to be passed back to the crown. And according to the lawyer who handled the case, the main stumbling block that he faced would be the difficulty in the Lord Jesus Christ proving his identity to him. <laughs> You know, with a, with a consistent state of decline that the world has been in, I would have expected people to be more creative with, with how they pass on what they had gathered for themselves in this world. Now, it's quite interesting when we think about that, this issue of or this concept of leaving behind, bequeathing some things to those who, you, who are left behind when you pass on. It's quite interesting to consider what Jesus himself left behind 
when we consider it in worldly terms. Because Jesus left no wife or children. He left no house, no clothes, no money, no business. In fact, no writings that could directly be ascribed or authored by him. No writings by him. No hymns, no fancy portraits, no buildings, no remnant, even a few pieces of the cross, and not even a confirmed grave site for the person of Jesus. And so scarce a trace did Jesus leave that some have claimed that he was a myth, that he was someone who had been created in the minds of people to control others. The only things that Jesus left behind were people who believed his message, who believed his gospel. And so Jesus left his word, his teaching, and his church, which at that stage would have been a few hundred people. And these two legacies that he left behind, his teachings and his word, and this group of followers actually changed the course of history, if we are honest about it. You know, everything passes away. Rulers, nations, professions, possessions, political movements, houses, heirlooms, all of those things pass away except for Jesus' word and his teachings and his church. And those were Jesus's priorities when he was here. And that was the legacy that he left for us, the baton, so to speak, that he passed on to those who followed after him. It was Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. He said in Matthew 16 and verse 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so in the light of that, I think we can ask ourselves, to what extent am I investing in what will last? To what extent are we investing in what truly will last in regards to the generation that follows on after us? What will our legacy reveal mattered most to us. Now, as we look at the person of Jesus, it seems that most of what Jesus did in the 30-odd years that he was on earth actually in some way prepared him to be able to pass on something of eternal value and leave behind a living legacy. It's not dead. Because as we know, Jesus only started his, his ministry when he was 30 years old. Now, Jesus' preparation began when he was a child. When we think of Jesus, we, we must remember that Jesus was fully divine, but he was also fully human. And so there are elements of Jesus' humanity that were fully reliant on him receiving a legacy, so to speak, from those who had been used by God before him. 
the generations before Jesus played a vital role in Jesus fulfilling his mission. Jesus established himself and built on the foundation that the prophets, the kings, the priests, the rabbis, the followers of Yahweh had laid before he arrived and incarnated himself into that context. Because Jesus didn't just rock up at age 30, automatically just knowing everything. That's not really what happened. For Jesus himself, Jesus the son of Joseph, the son of Mary, or as he would have been known in his village, Yeshua ben Yosef, and later on he would have been known Yeshua Nazrayah, or Jesus of Nazareth. He was someone who needed an investment from the generation that preceded him. Jesus was born, he grew up, and spent his ministry among people of faith, people who knew the scripture. For them, it would have been the Torah, the first book of the Bible. They knew it by memory. They didn't have the Bible in the way that we have it. And so for them, it was important that it be memorized. They were people who openly debated the application of Scripture with enthusiasm and who loved God with all their hearts, with all their souls, and with all of their might, as it says in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5. And God the Father prepared this environment carefully so that Jesus would have exactly the context that he needed to present his message of the kingdom of heaven, or as it would have been said in his time, Malchut Shemaim. And his followers, the people who he taught, the crowds who followed him, would have understood what he was saying. Because Jesus fit into that world perfectly. So as a boy... Jesus would have gone through the, the Jewish education system of that time, which is called the Mishnah. And learning for him would have started at age five. When I look at our five-year-olds there, I am well, some of our five-year-olds, my daughter's eight-year-old. When I consider that and I think about the fact that for them, this rigorous education started at five, it's quite an idea to have that... Um, the education was revolved around the Torah. It revolved around memorizing scripture. It revolved around interpreting and engaging only with scripture. And so for Jesus as a boy, learning for him would have started at age five. And though little is stated about Jesus's childhood, we know that he grew up in wisdom as a boy as it says in Luke chapter 2 and verse 52, and that he reached the fulfilling of the commandments, which is indicated by one's first Passover at age 12, which Luke chapter 2 also describes for us. And it would have been at that point at age 12 when Jesus had his very first Passover, as it's mentioned there in Luke chapter 2, which is probably a ceremony 
that forms the background for today's Bar Mitzvah um, celebration, which Orthodox Jews um, celebrate when a, when a child turns 13 years old, they are now able to understand the Ten Commandments. And Jesus' excellent questions for the teachers in the temple that we read about in Luke chapter 2 indicate this, the kind of study that Jesus must have done. Because at that life stage, at age 12 and 13 years old, only the best students would have been able to memorize the entire five books, first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And then at age 15, Jesus would have engaged with what is called the Talmud, which incorporates making rabbinic interpretations, kind of like exegeting scripture. And then as we know from Matthew chapter 13, Jesus learned a trade from his father Joseph, um, which as we know is carpentry. And so when we think about that, it appears that Jesus must have been one of the best students because he actually went on to study further. Because at those times, if, if a, a child, a boy became, he turned 15 years old, that was the time when he needed to start, um, he needed to start his apprenticeship or learning a trade or following a career. But if the, the boy was really good at studies, if he was a really good academic, he would continue his studies. And so it appears that Jesus was one of those. Jesus was one of those who was really good, and so he would have continued learning on from age 15, and this would then have led him to become a teacher, a rabbi, as he continued to mature. Now, as we think about passing on to the next generation what we have received, we see that this was even true for Jesus. Jesus had an entire infrastructure that shaped who he became. There was a community of people being used by God the Father to pour into the life of Jesus. And Jesus needed that. And we also need that. We also need a community of followers who pour into our lives. And so do our children. So does the next generation that follows on from us. Because as we know, Jesus didn't just show up knowing everything. On, on Father's Day, a few weeks back, um, Stanley actually said something profound while he was being interviewed on the stage. And he said that it takes a village to raise a child. You know, it takes a village to raise a child is an African proverb that means that an entire community of people must provide for and interact positively with children so that those children can grow up in a safe and a healthy environment. Now, when we think about that idea of um, a village raising a child, I kind of see that in the life of Jesus as well. Jesus didn't grow up in isolation. There were people around him, and they were the ones working to shape him. And so we see that in the life of Jesus 
as a young person. But when I think about where we are at now in our modern day society, it seems to me that somewhere along the way we've perhaps lost this idea of village. It takes a village to raise a child. And maybe we find ourselves in a society that rather pursues individualism than community or unity. And so as a result of that, I think families might be missing out on crucial learning experiences and much-needed support systems. And in the end, and I'm speaking from experience here, many parents, parents feel isolated and alone in their struggles, and kids don't also have the opportunity to engage with a diverse group of people and personalities who effectively are discipling them as well. And so I want to encourage us this morning to continue to build community with one another. A community that involves all aspects of who we are as a people, a people who have been called out from one kingdom into the kingdom of God. Now next I, I want us to consider the kind of people as we transition from Jesus being a boy and into a, a rabbi, a teacher at age 30, to what he actually then moved to pass on to those who followed on after him. And I want us to, to think of the kind of people that Jesus thought to call, the kind of people that he drew to himself. Now, when Jesus finally started his ministry as a teacher, and he was an unconventional teacher, an unconventional rabbi in his time, a foundational aspect of his mission was bringing together or calling people who would pass on what he had given to them. He needed people who wouldn't be reservoirs, but channels. Now, I find it quite interesting that half of the group of disciples were fishermen. Half of them. Because Andrew, Peter, James, and John, they, those were the sons of Zebedee, they worked as fishermen. We read about that in Matthew chapter 4. But then also Thomas, Nathaniel, and Philip were also probably fishermen as they were all together and fishing when Jesus appeared to them in John chapter 21, verses 2 to 8, following on after his resurrection. Now, when we think about the fact that Jesus could have probably chosen the very best Torah students to be the ones who he would entrust with the work of carrying on and passing on this very precious message of the gospel, it's actually, to me, it's a bit perplexing that he would choose those kinds of people. You know, why don't you just choose the best academics? Because the, the, the very task at hand revolved around being able to communicate and argue truth. But what he does is he chooses what seems to be this ragtag group of men. But I think that there's something deeper at work 
in Jesus' decision to choose fishermen in particular. And it relates to the nature of their work. And I want to go off on a tangent here for a minute, if, you, if you'll allow me. Um, the Jews had a somewhat negative relationship with oceans, with seas, with large bodies of water. They had a really negative relationship and approach to those kinds of things. Because Jews were not seafarers. They were desert nomads. They really controlled the seacoast on their western side. In fact, their father Abraham was a shepherd in the Negev, which is the desert in the south of Israel. The Israelites wandered for 40 years in the desert before settling in the promised land. And to the Israelites, the sea probably appeared alien and threatening, a place of chaos and disorder with depths holding unknown danger and uncertainty for them. They were not a people who were at home on the seas. And ancient cultural stories depicted the sea in that way as well for them. In turn, the writers of Scripture used sea imagery also in a very negative way. For example, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, it describes there for us the beginning or the creation narrative of the world as being a watery chaos, a prime evil sea from which God brought order. The sea also became a tool of God's judgment in the Exodus story when the Israelites left um, their, their, their place of, of capture in Egypt. And then as well, there's the story of Noah's flood, where it is seen as this tool that is used by God to bring judgment. And then we know there's the story of Noah, who gets thrown into the depths. And then there are many, many psalms that describe the sea as a very dangerous place. Psalm 30. Psalm 69, 65, 77, 89, and the list continues. And so for them, there was this order around large bodies of water, around seas and oceans. And so here comes Jesus. And he chooses these men who not only work on the sea, but they work in the sea. In this entity that for the Jewish people represents chaos and danger and disorder and actually has the potential to take your life. And Jesus takes these men and he molds them into people who then instead of having to engage with the chaos and the danger and the disorder of the oceans and the seas, he uses them to minister into the chaotic, the disorderly lives of the people who he loves. And fishermen are people who have the boldness and the bravery and the skill to venture out on the uncertainty of deep waters. And Jesus strategically 
welcomes the skills that they bring into his team. Now, on top of that, Jesus calls people who seem inadequate and mismatched for the task. And there is actually good evidence to indicate that most of the disciples who Jesus called were teenagers. I had a conversation with someone in the week and I mentioned this to him and he said, there's no way. There's no way those were young men. <laughs> and the, the fact of the matter is, I think that for us, our interpretation of who these men were has been shaped by media. It has been shaped by the movies that we see. It's been shaped by the, the paintings that we've seen where Jesus is interacting with these people. But scripture actually directs us to something else. Scripture actually points in the direction of the fact that these men were actually quite young, and in all probability, the most of them were teenagers. I wouldn't build an entire doctrine on it, but it's just interesting for us to, to take note of that. Because Peter, as we know, was married, and so he could have been in the age probably around 20 to 25. Matthew, the tax collector, would also probably have been one of the older ones, because he would have needed to have a bit more maturity to be contracted for the kind of work that he did. But it seems like most of these disciples were already, they were already apprenticing at their trades. And this would have been something that happens in that culture when young men were in their late teens. Also, traditionally, a rabbi would usually be much older than the students who he called. And Jesus, as we know, was 30 years old. And then there's the story about um, the mother of James and John, Salome, who tried to negotiate with Jesus better seating for her sons in Matthew chapter 20. And this would have been very unusual in their context for a mother to try to negotiate on behalf of adult sons. And then we know there's the story in Matthew 17 where Jesus um, says to Peter to go and get a fish. And in the fish's mouth, there was this coin which would have paid for their temple tax. Now, in those days, only males older than 20 years of age needed to pay temple tax. And Jesus doesn't mention any of the other disciples. He says only for himself and for Peter, indicating that the others were, in all probability, teenagers. I encourage you to do a study on that. Not a whole lot has been written about it, but it does seem to indicate that that is true. So what do we do with that? I mean, that's, that's, that's quite interesting. Um, but I think when I, when I bring it back to where we are now, and I think about our current context now in Cape Town in South Africa, the world. Um, I recognize the fact that the season we are in currently is a very challenging season. And when I think about the generation of people who need to face this difficult season, season right now, I must confess to you that I sometimes worry. I mean, I am the father of a teenager's son as well. I'm concerned about that. 
Because right now there are many storms waging upon oceans and seas that are already rough. And so I wonder to myself, particularly in the evenings when I pray, how will this generation be able to communicate the message of truth, the message of the kingdom of heaven being at hand? And I am pushed towards the understanding that Jesus will draw the kind of young men and young women able to navigate the season in the way that he did back then while holding on to this message of the gospel in ways that I might not understand. But also beyond that, beyond just having faith and trust in Jesus and his ability to mold and to shape us into something that we are not, his ability to change the spots of a leopard. I must also be active in the kind of village, in the kind of community that will create the conditions needed for this generation to thrive in. And so for them in turn to pass on what they have received. And I take courage in the fact that the very story of Jesus' life is a model for me now and it will be a model for those who follow on after us. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you this morning that even as we reflect on your life, we find encouragement in the path that Jesus walked. We thank you for the story of incarnation, that you sent Jesus into this broken world, that you sent him because you loved us and you love us so much. We thank you, Lord, that you pass on to us something of great value, a treasure, that you instill in us something of great value that is able to change the very people of who we are. And we thank you even that as we think to the future, to our futures, you have stored up for us in heaven a great inheritance that nothing can remove, can defile, can destroy. And Lord, as we here in this part of your vineyard here in Cape Town, as we continue to face the challenges that lie before us while we follow after Jesus, we ask, Lord, that you would continue to come and shape us, continue to come and mold us, continue to work through us, continue also to shape and mold the generation that follows on after us. Continue to create spaces where we can disciple one another. And so we thank you, Father, that today that we can, even as we sit here together, see ourselves as community. And we thank you for what you have done that has brought us here, and we trust you for what lies ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.